Welcome to the Cherry Hills Podcast. We're in a teaching series in the Sermon on the Mount called The Politics of Jesus, where we're learning how to live the upside-down way of Jesus' kingdom. Thanks for joining us. The word politics means the activities associated with the governance of a country or kingdom. In other words, it simply means the way people living in groups make decisions and live those decisions out as a community. Jesus' Sermon on the Mount is a picture of the kingdom of God invitation to life in community, which is often upside down to the kingdom of this world. Politics. What do you think when you hear that word? You think good thoughts, uh, bad thoughts? Uh, For most of us, the word at least brings some charged emotions to the table, especially after this last year. But just as that video showed us, the word politics just means the activities associated with the government of a kingdom or a country. In other words, it's just how a people live under the rule of an authority. As I watched this last year unfold, one of the things I couldn't help but notice is how closely the politics of our nation began to get intermingled with Jesus people using Jesus to push a political agenda. Now, please hear me. I'm not suggesting that there aren't issues that line up with Jesus in the Bible and that we should rightly be talking about those things, but I think we might all agree that it got to a place that people were using Jesus to support things that Jesus himself would not support. It culminated on that day when the rioters broke into the Capitol building, holding signs of Jesus as they did it. And I think, at least I would hope, that that was heartbreaking to all of us because that is certainly not the way of Jesus. How could people honestly use Jesus to support violence like that? Is that the Jesus they see in the Bible? Is Jesus' agenda for us always the same as our agenda for the nation? And it brought me back to this idea of politics. In fact, if you don't like this title, if you're uncomfortable with it, you can blame me for it. But politics, again, remember, it just means living under the rule of a kingdom or country and authority. And did you realize that qualifies Jesus as a political leader? He also has a political kingdom. We're told it's the kingdom of God, and he asks people to live under his authority in his kingdom. That's his political party. In fact, the very first words Jesus uttered in the gospel of Mark, in Mark 1, he says, the time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. That is as politically charged of a statement as you could imagine. Both the Jews and the Romans' ears would have perked up. Now, much like today, when they heard Jesus say that, they would have thought that he was talking about some sort of political power, some sort of force that would overthrow the Romans. This is what the Jews had been hoping for from their Messiah, from their king, that he would bring war and that he would establish Israel as a great nation once again. But then, as we start to read through the Gospels, we notice that isn't the kind of kingdom that Jesus is ushering in. His is not a kingdom of force. His is not a kingdom of power. It's a kingdom of spiritual power, yes. A kingdom that changes a person from the inside out instead of from the outside in. His kingdom would be like no other kingdom the world has ever seen. So to tie it into the series we're going to be starting today, if you're following on your notes, Jesus' kingdom is upside down to those of this world. 
And if we want to understand his kingdom, the best place to look is the Sermon on the Mount. Because again, if you're on your notes, the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' inaugural address of his kingdom platform. Let me put it this way. Speaking to his disciples, Jesus gives his political platform and he essentially says to us, if you're voting for me, we would say, if you're following me, if you want to be my disciple, this is what it looks like. This is what I expect. This is what I want. If you're my disciple, you are first and foremost to be a citizen of my kingdom. And this is what my kingdom looks like. And for the next 10 weeks, we're going to study the politics of Jesus, or if you prefer, the Sermon on the Mount, where we're going to learn how to live the upside-down way of his kingdom. Now, interestingly enough, Jesus' platform does not start with all the things that he's going to do, like most politicians. His platform starts with all the things he wants us to be. They're called the Beatitudes. And for Jesus, the most important thing for his kingdom are the postures or the attitudes that his people have. His kingdom, listen, starts in the heart. It starts with our character, or if you're following on your notes, the Beatitudes describe the character traits of true disciples. And believe me, as we walk through these, we're going to notice right away that these postures are in direct opposition to some of the postures that are most celebrated in our world today. And so with our time this morning, what I hope to do is briefly cover the nine postures or attitudes Jesus is looking for for disciples in his kingdom. But first, let me just say a word about blessed, right? Each of these is going to start with the word blessed are, blessed are. So what does that word exactly mean? Well, I'll just say it's more than a superficial feeling of happiness, that's for sure. Even though it can be trans translated as happy, I want you, when you hear that word, to simply think of a state of being. If you're following on your notes, literally, to be blessed means we are approved by God. And we have to get to the point where we realize, more than anything else, that is what will make me happy. I am happy, I'm blessed when I've been approved by God. And so the question I want you to ask yourselves as we're walking through this is, number one, do I want God's approval more than anything else? Is this really the most important thing for me in my life, more important than my agenda, more important than power? Is this more important than anything for me, God's approval? And number two, do I really believe that true happiness comes from this? Is this what it would really like to live the good life, as we like to call it? And so let's look at the postures or hard attitudes of a happy life in God's kingdom. I just want to say to you, this is going to feel a lot like a fire hose coming at you today. One day, I promise you, we're going to come back and do just a series on the Beatitudes themselves. But for now, let's start by looking at verses 1 and 2 of Matthew chapter 5. That's where you can find the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to be camping out here, like I said, for 10 weeks. And it all starts with this. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. That is what a teacher would do. They would sit down while the students would stand. In fact, you want to try that together, right? No, okay. His disciples came to him. Notice who came to him. His disciples, those who are wanting to be a part of his kingdom, and he began to teach them. Now, they would be very excited right now. Here is this king claiming the kingdom of God has come. I can't wait to hear what he has to say. Verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, 
I mean, if you were hoping for political power here, this would have been a pretty big letdown, right? The paradox of Jesus' platform here hits us immediately. Today, we would say, blessed are the self-sufficient, the strong, the person who is right, the person who is powerful. Jesus knocks all that down, and he says, God approves those who are poor in spirit. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? I love how the New Living Translation translates verse 3 here. I printed it on your notes there. It helps us get to the heart of it. Would you read it out loud with me? It says, God blesses those who are poor and realize their need for him, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. To be poor in spirit means you realize at some point in your life that apart from God's grace, you are nothing. In the presence of a holy God, in the presence of the King Eternal, I have nothing in and of myself to make myself right with him. And so if you're on your notes again, to be poor in spirit means acknowledging our spiritual bankruptcy. Now just lean in with me a minute. I am not overstating it to say this is the most important verse in the entire Sermon on the Mount. Because no one can enter God's kingdom without this acknowledgement. I don't care how many times somebody's walked down the aisle, prayed the sinner's prayer, raised their hand. Friends, this first beatitude is one of the strongest statements in the Bible that the only way that you and I can be made right with God is to be a, and to be a part of his kingdom is to first acknowledge our need for him. To be poor in spirit is to see myself for who I really am. I am lost. I am hopeless. I am helpless apart from Jesus Christ. This statement would have flown right in the face of what everybody else was pushing in that day, which was called religion, where you can work hard enough to earn God's favor in your life. It also flies in the face of what we hear in the systems of our world, right? I don't want to admit this kind of dependency. I want to admit my self-sufficiency. But Jesus says the key to the kingdom is acknowledging our dependence completely on him and him alone. Sadly, I think too many Christians still sit in church and think, I can do enough in my life to ultimately please God. The, t- the scale's going to ultimately tip in my favor. No, you can't. I will put this as bluntly as I can. There is no one in the kingdom of heaven who is not poor in spirit. It is the fundamental posture of a Christian. And everything else we're going to look at the next nine weeks will be impossible and will leave you so discouraged if you haven't first understood this one. I got to be honest with you. Sometimes when I read the Sermon on the Mount, I feel this real burden. I'm a failure. I can't live up to this. This is so hard. If you've studied it before, you know exactly what I'm talking about. But then you have to come back and realize this is an invitation. That Jesus is offering it. And yes, it is impossible apart from him. The promise of salvation, when we acknowledge our dependency upon him, is that Jesus now takes up residence in our life, and he is the one who wants to help us live out these kingdom values together. There's absolutely no mistake in my mind that these are the first words uttered out of Jesus' mouth in his inauguration address. Jesus declares right out of the gate, it is only by my grace that you can enter the kingdom, and it is only by my grace that you can live the way of the kingdom. Have you settled that in your life? Have you recognized your spiritual bankruptcy? Then good news, welcome to the kingdom of heaven. 
I could spend the whole day on that one, but we got to keep moving. Let's look at the next posture. It follows this one closely. It says, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Just like the one before it, this goes completely against what our world tells us. We would almost translate that as happy are the unhappy. Upside down kingdom. This is craziness because everything I do in my power is to try to avoid unhappiness in my life. So we pursue other things we think will bring us happiness, right? We pursue pleasure and money and entertainment and fame and praise and self-expression. All these things we pursue because we want to avoid this unhappiness, but yet we realize those things never actually satisfy us in the end. They don't bring lasting happiness. That's important to understand when Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn, he doesn't mean blessed are the grim, cheerless Christians. Sadly, I think there have been people who take it that way, right? I don't think he wants us to be a bunch of Eeyores walking around in his kingdom. He wants us to laugh. He wants us to enjoy life. So what does he mean? Well, remember what I said. There's no accident in the order of these Beatitudes. With that in mind, what do you think Jesus may be talking about here? Blessed are those who mourn. Friends, I think he's saying, once you come to understand your spiritual bankruptcy, you realize the reality of sin and the damage and effect it has had, both in your life and in the lives of other people around you, you can't help but mourn over that. Grieve. If you're following on your notes, to mourn is a spiritual grieving over sin and its effects. This is what Paul is talking about in 2 Corinthians 7.10, where he describes it as this godly sorrow. Now, there's worldly sorrow. That's when I say, oops, I did it again. I'm sorry that I got caught doing this. Godly sorrow is this deep grieving and mourning because the more we understand what Jesus has done for us by giving his life on the cross, covering us with his blood, we are grieved. We mourned. When we hurt him, we have our hearts broken when we hurt others because of the effects of our sin. The psalmist says, a broken spirit and a contrite heart, these God will not despise. And Jesus promises for those who confront their sin and are broken by it, they will receive true comfort. Has this happened in your life? Or do you still live under this sense of extreme guilt? Have you heard the words, my grace is sufficient for you? Jesus stands in the gap for you right now. You are forgiven. On to verse 5, it says, Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Ugh, meek. Seriously. Be honest, what do you think of when you hear the word meek? You think of a guy like this? Now, interestingly, the word meek in the original Greek language meant to bridle wild horses, to put great strength under control. Consider, for example, that Moses was called the meekest man ever on the face of the earth, and yet he is one of the greatest leaders to ever live. Now, if you're following, meekness is not weakness, but strength under control. Meek people will still stand for the truth and they will even die for it if necessary. If I could use one word to describe meekness, it'd be the word humility. Blessed are the humble. We talked about humility uh, this past fall in our series in Micah 6, 8, and humility is simply setting aside my power for the sake of another. That is humility. 
And we get no better example of that than Jesus. Jenny read the text this morning already for us, right? Jesus, who was in very nature God, humbled himself, setting aside all of his rights, becoming obedient to death, death on a cross. Would you call that weakness or the greatest act of strength ever in history? The cool promise about humility is that we will inherit the earth. The humble will inherit the earth. That is the complete opposite of what we would expect today. Again, his kingdom is not like the kingdom of this world. One would think that meek people would get nowhere, that we'd be trampled underfoot. It's the proud, it's the arrogant, it's the strong who rule, but the kingdom is different than the kingdoms of this world. And Jesus promises you, if you remain humble, you're going to share in my inheritance now and forever. Can you already see how upside down the kingdom of God is compared to the kingdoms of this world? If Jesus were to offer this as his platform today, he would not get one vote. Amen? He wouldn't get one vote because it is so upside down. Now, as we move into the next section, some people have talked about that the first three are really about inward things that happen in our lives. And as we move out, these are going to be the results of these inward things. So let's look at how this outward journey begins. Look at verse six. It says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Remember when you were in grade school and health class, you were taught these famous words, you are what you, go ahead, you are what you eat. Basically, they were saying to us, if you eat too many donuts, if you eat too much sugar, you're going to end up like this guy. That is a reference to a movie in the 80s, extra credit if you are that old and you know it. And as I've grown older, friends, I got to say, as my metabolism has slowed down, there's more truth to that than I wanted to admit when I was younger. It has a lot of merit. And in the fourth beatitude, Jesus tells us that that phrase, you are what you eat, you are what you drink, it has more than just physical implications in our lives. It has spiritual implications as well. And he says, if you really want to be healthy, your diet should consist of righteousness. Now, when you think about what our world hungers and thirsts for, what I sometimes hunger and thirst for, righteousness, it's not on the top of my list. That's like the pickles in the back of the refrigerator for me. We think no, 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 no. Here's what I want to hunger and thirst for. Things like sex and wealth and excitement and power, new gadgets, new clothes, the latest fashions, entertainment, all those things I think are going to fill me up. And in the end, they just leave me unsatisfied. I just want to be careful. None of those things in and of themselves are wrong unless they become the ultimate thing, the thing we think that will make us satisfied. But Jesus says, no, the only thing that will make you satisfied is righteousness. I love how Tim Keller says, grace is never opposed to works. And that's really what we're talking about here. In this case, friends, righteousness, if you're on your notes, refers to the process of becoming Christ-like. The biblical word here is sanctification. Use that at your next dinner party or Zoom party, I guess. It's this great mystery that though we've been declared righteous once and for all by the blood of Jesus Christ, through faith, by grace, there still remains the remnants of sin in my earthly flesh. I know that. Every single day, I know that. And so pursuing righteousness means I'm going to give my all to become more like Jesus, to become whole and free from sin. And it's this desperate desire he's calling us to have to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, as Paul would say. 
I don't think we quite understand how serious this was, right? Today, if I'm hungry, I just go to my fridge. If I'm thirsty, I just go turn on the tap. But in this day, to the ancient Palestinian who'd be listening to this message, this was right in their face. Because they were always close to starvation. They were always close to dehydration. And it reminds me what Jesus is saying of a picture my sister-in-law once took on a mission trip in Nicaragua. They had just opened up this clean water well, and you see this child gasping, desperately needing the water for his life. And that's the picture Jesus is giving to hunger and thirst after righteousness. He's not just saying, hey, go ahead and get yourself a mid-morning snack because you had a light breakfast. No, this is a desperate pursuit in our lives. It's to be like the psalmist said it in Psalm 42.1, which I have on your notes there. Would you read it with me? It says, as the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, my God. You will be satisfied in life when you make me your primary pursuit. Do you really want that in your life? Do you want to be full? What do you need to cut out from your diet in order to attain that? What kind of vegetables do you need to add to your diet in order to attain that? Moving on, verse 7, blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Again, the Greek word translated merciful means to give help to the wretched, to relieve the miserable. Mercy is compassion for people in need. But here's the key, what Jesus is getting at. It's not just feeling compassion, not just feeling sympathy. If you're on your notes, mercy is compassion in action. It's not enough just to feel bad for people who are suffering. We are called to be merciful to them. Of course, uh, the reason we're called to this is that the greatest act of mercy ever displayed is when God sent his only begotten son. He saw our wretched estate. He saw the effects of sin in this world, and yet despite his sin, his compassion for us moved him to action. And that is is what makes the kingdom of God different from any other religion, any other kingdom. Our God does not sit up on a throne in power, aloof to the effects and the problems of this world. He stepped down from that throne and he came in mercy to fix it. And he's asking us, will you be merciful like I was merciful? Back in 2006, a story that stuck with me. Honestly, since then, some of you might remember this, but a man named Charles Roberts entered into a school full of Amish children, and I believe he killed five of them until he took his own life. It's a hard day. His wife was named Marie Roberts, and you know they set up the funeral with her two kids for her husband who had done this atrocious thing. And on the day of the funeral, 75 of the Amish people came and sat with her at that funeral. I mean, it gives me the chills still to think about that today. What an incredible act of mercy. She was so overwhelmed, though she did not deserve it because of her husband, they still showed compassion. They gave her what she didn't deserve. I sure wish there was more of that kind of compassion, especially this last year, this kind of mercy. Even among Christians, I couldn't believe some of the vitriol and hatred and anger. And so before I move on to the next one, just a few of these, I'm just going to pause a little bit and just say, how can we grow to be more merciful in our lives? I'm going to recommend two things to you that have helped me if you're tempted to show judgment or hatred or anger. Number one, if you're on your notes, remember the mercy Jesus gave me. Not me, but you. 
Remember the mercy Jesus gave me. Always, always, always keep this in the back of my head. His mercy for me cost him his life. How can I not show that same mercy for others? I need his mercy every day. I don't know about you. And his promises, it's there for me. It's new every morning. And then number two, please remember, every person has a story. There was a kid in high school. It would get as close as I would, could get to saying I hated him. He was constantly bugging me, constantly picking on me, constantly torturing me. And then one day, I found out about his home life and the abuse that he faced. And I just want to say to you, once I found out who he was as a person, it became a lot easier to be merciful to him. We can show mercy when we know people as people. When we see people as people created in the image of God, broken people. Verse 8, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. The word heart in the Bible doesn't mean just emotions like we've made it today. It's talking about the whole of a person. Our heart is the totality of who we are. And so the idea here between, behind pure of heart is in reference to having a sincere heart. A person who is free from falsehood. The Greek word, again, I keep talking about the Greek word, but it helps us understand the deeper meaning of this. would use this word when it talked about metals being refined down to their purest, unmixed form. So have that picture in mind and think about what Jesus is saying about purity. Have an unmixed, unalloyed, pure life. And the word, again, I'd use for that is integrity. Be a person of integrity. If you're on your notes, a person of integrity in their public and private life. I make that simple. Be a person who is the same everywhere. Be the same person you are at home, that you are at work, that you are at school, that you are at the gym. Be a person who is single-minded in everything you do. And when you start doing that, he's promised to you and me is you'll begin to see God. When I was in second grade, I had to get my first pair of glasses. I couldn't even read billboards any, anymore. And I remember putting them on thinking, oh, this is what it's supposed to look like. I can see again. And the promise to us here is the purer our hearts become, the more we will see God in this life. And the more we see God, the more we'll want to become like God until one day we will stand before God and he will give us 20-20 vision. Now we come to verse 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Peace. It's a popular word today. But I think when we use it, we mean, can't we just all get along? Jesus was the Prince of Peace. He divided people. And he was ultimately killed. Peace is more than just the absence of strife and conflict, which is what it's been reduced to often. In the Bible, the word for peace is Shalom. Chuck just talked about this a couple weeks ago. Shalom is this sense of wholeness and well-being. Jesus brings shalom when he comes to earth for us. And he asks us to do the same for others. If you're following to be a peacemaker means bringing wholeness and healing to this world. And that requires two things. It requires bringing spiritual wholeness through the gospel. Telling other people about the good news that Jesus has come to save us. But it also requires physically caring for the least of these. 
To be a peacemaker means we're involved in both of those things because Jesus was involved in both of those things. And he invites us to be actively working to be a source of peace for others. Now, like mercy, let me do a little bit digger dive here because how much does our world need to see this from the church today? So let me give you one thought, how to become a better peacemaker. Speak less, listen more. James said it this way, be quick to listen and slow to speak or slow to post, I think is what the 2020 version would say. Man, it feels like the opposite of this right now. Quick to speak, slow to listen. As one person said, if we could all control our tongues, there would be much less discord in this world. Don't hear me. There are things that we speak up about. But we do it in the postures that we've already been learning about. We do it in terms of a personal relationship with another person. This is perhaps what confused me the most this year, right? Putting people into groups and categories. When we do that, we can vilify them because we don't even know any of them personally anymore. No people then discuss the truth with them. So let me ask you, are you working towards peace? Or are you fueling discontentment? Do you find joy in reporting trouble and scandal and conspiracy? If you're always critical and always fault-finding, then you're probably not interested in bringing this kind of shalom. Let's change that. Let's change it, starting without. Let's go out and look for the means and methods to bring peace to this world, taking the initiative, yes, sharing the gospel, which is the only way a person can experience the peace of God, working towards social justice and fairness. Maybe we should apologize more in our lives. Maybe we should seek to understand those I disagree with on a personal level instead of vilifying them without even knowing them. Maybe start believing, get this, that I may not be right all the time. I may not actually know everything. Our world needs peacemakers right now. Remember, this does not mean everything goes but it's actually engaging with people in conversation and in action. Which brings us to the last one. You know, when we try to be peacemakers, often the result is what verse 10 describes. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He goes on and expands this one. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now, why does Jesus expand on this one, do you think? I love how one Puritan commentator said, the reason Christ repeats himself is because this statement was so incredible. Incredible. I mean, really, if of all the Beatitudes, doesn't this seem the most contrary to the way we think? You'll be happy when people persecute you. Uh, no, I won't. Now, please note, Jesus did not say, blessed are those who are persecuted because they're annoying, because they're rude, because they're thoughtless, because they're insensitive, because they're proud or judgmental. He says, blessed are those who are persecuted because of what? Righteousness sake. Practicing righteousness, practicing the way of Jesus. Those who are blessed are persecuted for being like Jesus. Now, why would somebody be persecuted for righteousness' sake? Well, the same reason Jesus was persecuted. If you're following on your notes, this might be the most important line on here because the gospel clashes with all other value systems. Friends, the gospel of Jesus, which we've just been studying, is offensive 
As Christians, we don't need to make it more offensive. It's already offensive enough. I mean, try telling somebody you need a savior outside of yourself. You should humble yourself because that's really the way to true glory. Seek after righteousness instead of all these things. Lay your rights aside for the sake of another. That's offensive. Paul put it this way in 1 Corinthians 1.23. I have it on your notes. Would you read it with me? We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. The gospel is a stumbling block. So it shouldn't be surprising when we're really living in the kingdom of God that persecution comes. What should be more surprising is when persecution doesn't come. Kent Hughes, he's a biblical scholar, is really helpful. Uh, He wrote a paragraph about this that really spoke to me this week. I think it speaks to all generations, to be honest with you. He writes, the tragedy today is not that persecutions happen to believers, but that very often they do not, at least for not the right reasons. One reason for this is that many Christians are cut off from the world. They go to church that is 100% Christian, attend Bible studies that are 100% Christian, attend Christian schools, exercise with Christians, garden with Christians, and golf with Christians, and are thus sealed off from persecution. I hear the younger generation saying, yeah, that's right. Keep listening. Other keep their Christianity so secret as to not make waves with non-Christian associates. By far the greatest reason there is so little persecution is that the church has become like the world. If you want to get along, the formula is simple. Approve of the world's morals and ethics, at least outwardly. Live like the world lives. Act as if all religions converge on the same road. Don't mention hell. Draw no moral judgments. And above all else, do not share your faith. Follow this formula, and it will be smooth sailing. Ouch. I can see my own life in there. If we're going to share Jesus' platforms through word and deed, there's going to be pushback because each of these things flies in the face of what our world celebrates. Who wants to be told they have a need for a Savior? That sin is real and needs to be dealt with. That meekness, humility is better than power. Purity is better than the substitutes that are being dangled before us every day, every time we turn on the TV, that we are to show even people we do not like mercy and so on and so forth. And that persecution will lead to a happy life. But Jesus says, if you voted for me, if you've stepped into my kingdom, These are the postures I'm looking for, and they're the only path that can lead you to true happiness. How do you feel right now? Exhausted? Mad at me? Convicted? Overwhelmed? Sure feels like it. Trust me when I say me too. This is a hard saying. But as we close, I'm going to just ask you, would you keep your notes open for a minute? And I'm going to give you the opportunity to examine these postures of the kingdom in your own life in a time of prayer. And here's the question I want you to bring to the Lord. Lord, are the postures of your kingdom evident in my life? Take your time. Go through each of them. Listen to what the Holy Spirit might be saying to you. Before you do that, though, this is the most important thing I could tell you today. More than anything, I want you to remember right now Blessed are the poor in spirit. None of us have these down. Amen? 
These are not fully evident in my life at all. But the worst thing you could do right now is see these as a bunch of rules and a bunch of burdens. These are an invitation to a better life that Jesus will begin to grow in us as we give ourselves to him and his kingdom. You cannot do these on willpower alone. Do you understand that? You will be so overwhelmed and burdened and sad thinking this is impossible. And guess what? It is impossible apart from the grace of Jesus Christ. I will remind you of my favorite verse in the Bible as we do this. Jesus promised when you abide in me, I will abide in you and you will bear much fruit. The only way we can grow in the postures of the kingdom is by abiding in Jesus. I am poor in spirit, then you're blessed. So let's take some time and please remember He's for us. He's invited us to live a better life. Let's pray. Oh Lord, on behalf of everyone in this room, I assume we can just look at these and our hearts are burdened. But maybe that's what it means to be blessed, to recognize our spiritual bankruptcy, to mourn over how short I fall in these things. But we remember the invitation you give us to live a better life, the kingdom life, that you're for us, that you want us to grow in these things, but we cannot do that apart from you. So yeah, we're honest before you right now. We lay this template over ourselves, but we don't want to try harder. We want to abide deeper. grateful that your kingdom is not like any other kingdom. We're grateful for the invitation you give us to do life together with you. But we're reminded today again that it's not just about me. It's about others. So help us to carry these postures into our week, into our lives. Let us humble ourselves like you did for us bear much fruit. In Jesus' name.